Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast, where we sit down with everyday people who do extraordinary things. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Welcome, everybody, to the show. Today, we're going to be breaking all the rules in some respect. Uh, I did, and I was able to sit down with a very old friend of mine, Jason Nellis, and he has his own podcast, uh, and we we sort of reconnected on the uh, on the guise of, of trying to up the game as far as some of my tech goes uh, in the podcast, but also on sort of some of the other platforms, you know, try and try and get this thing growing a bit more. And it turns out that uh, he had done the Camino de Santiago, the trail over in Spain, the pilgrimage trail. And I thought, hey, well, after we do our chat, what do you say we sit down and do a podcast? And the reason I say we're breaking all the rules here, it would be that essentially, you know, we had to do this over video feed. He's on the West Coast. I'm up in Michigan. And it's kind of interesting because because he is uh, so immersed in the world of tech. That's the industry that he works in. His His audio quality is awesome and for whatever reason my microphone was a little glitchy and scratchy and so unfortunately that necessitated me to originally just abandon this uh this podcast and unfortunately it's such a good conversation as far as the information and insight that Jason is able to just just put out there and you know not only do we talk about the the trail but we also talk a lot about family life he has a a young child and uh you know a wife and everything and and we sort of go back and forth because I'm always curious about that aspect of life that has sort of forsaken me um or I have forsaken it I should say but after listening to a bit more of it, I was just like, I, I was determined to figure out a way to do this. And the original recording just, it has all these scratches. It was like every every time I talked, it was like, and so I, I went in and had to basically murder a lot of my position and my my speaking parts in this. And I tried to do as best I could to keep the flow of everything to make sure it made sense. A few of the scratches had to stay in just because, uh, you know, what I'm saying wouldn't wouldn't make any sense without them. So I apologize for that. And if you can get past uh, the audio quality, I think you'll really, really enjoy this this conversation. And uh, yeah, so breaking the rules on doing in person, breaking the rules on being really 100% happy with the audio quality but hey you know sometimes you just gotta forget about that and uh, because the content is is as good as uh, I think this one really is and luckily later on this week Jason and I are gonna have another call together and hopefully we'll be able to iron out some of uh, some of my stuff to to bring an even higher quality experience to all the listeners who I appreciate so, so much. So hopefully you guys will enjoy this show. But like I always say before, if you want to help support the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast and possible future adventures aboard Sparrow and other endeavors, consider becoming one of the Patreon family. Big, big shout out to everybody who's done that over the years. Really, really wouldn't keep this show going without that. So huge, huge props for that. Also have slots for one-time donations to help out. Um, 
put those links in the description. Uh, we've got the merch line, all the shirts and t-shirts and hoodies and all that sort of stuff. Uh, definitely we're discounted prices. And then we've got links to the books. We are on the verge of compiling all three of the first. So the first three of the children's books, they're about 20 something pages long. I'm going to condense all three of those into one hardcover copy that will be available on Amazon. That's really the goal. That's the one that I want to sell because a kid's book really needs to be a hardcover, I think, because it's going to take some abuse for sure. And I uh, want to make sure that, uh, we get that out, and it's it's nice and, and high quality for everybody. So other than that, if you want to reach out to the show, sailingintooblivion.com. And, um, yeah, please enjoy my conversation with Jason. Jason Nellis is, is here, uh, our guest on the show. Thank you for coming on, Jason. I really appreciate it. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. I'm so glad we get an opportunity not only to to have this conversation today, but we got to do it the other day on my podcast. This is more than we've talked in nearly 20 years. I love it. I know you, you never know when, when two old friends are going to sort of reconnect. And, uh, you know, when, when you had told me the other day about the, the, uh, Camino de Santiago, that just was light bulb in my head. And it, it goes right into like my intro on the show, sitting down with everyday people who do extraordinary things and did up and I did a little research. Normally I don't like to do that for a podcast because the, the, uh, be able to sort of fill me in on, on all these questions I have, but fascinating, absolutely fascinating. It's definitely, it is on my list now of must do's before I kick the bucket for sure. It, uh, you know, it's a funny thing. I, um, so for those that don't know, the Camino de Santiago is a, you know, a pilgrimage across Spain. It's a, you know, primarily a Catholic pilgrimage. I'm not Catholic. I grew up Jewish, but, um, you know, my mom married into a Catholic family and eventually converted. So when I was in college and thereafter, that was something that my stepfather did uh, as part of his school. He teaches at a parochial school. And so he would take oh, some of the wow. boys and they would do the last hundred miles of the Camino as like a big sort of, you know, personal development hike. And they do it over like five days. I mean, it's just a brutal amount of walking for them in a short period of time. <laughs> um, and in 2015, my folks announced that they wanted to go to the Camino and do that same section he had done. So I joined them for that last chunk, fell in love with it, had a great time and decided uh, a year later, I wanted to go and do the whole thing. So I flew into uh, the uh, east side of the Pyrenees, into Biarritz on, in France, uh, took a little bus to Saint-Jean, Pierre de Père, I believe is how it's pronounced. I'm butchering that. Uh, and then, <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, and then the next morning, hiked across the Pyrenees and went and did 500 miles in about four-ish weeks. Well, okay, so so when when I saw the original map of it, it obviously has routes because it's it's a pilgrimage from you know all over Europe essentially. But is there a very common route that's done? You know, I guess you would call it like the traditional route for modern day pilgrims. Yeah, the one that I did is called the Camino Frances, and that's the one that the majority of people who say they hike to the Camino do. But there's about you know, I mean, globally, there's, you know, people have added, well, you know, I started in Russia and I started in this city. And so this is the 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 Camino Roski or something like that. But the generally considered Camino pilgrimages, uh, there's a few of them. There's the Camino Frances. There's the Camino Norte, which does the very northern end of Spain. There's mm -hmm. the Portuguese Camino, which, of course, you know, goes along the western edge of that peninsula. Um, so there's there's many others. 
but the majority of folks, you know, they'll start in, in Saint-Jean, they'll cross the Pyrenees, they go up to uh, Pamplona, and then basically they walk west straight from there. And you end up in the city of Burgos, you cross the Mesetas, which is this very flat part of, uh, it's like Kansas for Spain. I mean, there's just nothing to look at except fields of, you know, farmland. Uh, you eventually right. make it to the city of Leon, which I believe used to be the capital of the kingdom of Leon back when Spain was a fractured set of kingdoms. Uh, and then you hike through Galicia to uh, Camino to, to the city of Santiago, excuse me. Um, and then you finish the Camino. And generally the four weeks I did it is considered for the, the length of uh, distance I went is a little bit aggressive. It's, you know, that's an average of about 17 miles a day. Most people, if they're doing the whole thing, will go at a slower pace and do it more like five weeks. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. And how, how many miles is it? Or it's about have it, it in kilometers. Yeah, it's yeah. 780 kilometers. So I generally round that up to about 500 miles, but it's like, I, again, my math is not strong here, but it's like 470, 480 miles somewhere in there. Okay. Okay. So that's a hefty long distance trail. I mean, I think that's why it's, it's always mentioned in the same breadth as, as a lot of the long distance American trails, even though it's, you know, it's, it's not as long, but it, it definitely has that history and the culture and it's a heck of a hike. It's not something you're just going to go do in a weekend. No, not at all. Although it's interesting because, you know, so at the end you get what's called a Compostela and a Compostela is an actual certificate of completion of some, you know, portion of uh, the pilgrimage. I have two of them. They're exactly the same, whether you hiked a hundred miles or whether you hiked the whole thing, but you have to do a minimum of 100 kilometers, which of course is about 60 miles. Um, so you see a lot of kids who are off for spring break will drop into one of the last cities that you can drop into and basically hike over the course of four or five days and end up with the same certificate I did. Um, uh, so I'm right. a little angry that I didn't get the like special honors. I didn't uh, get to walk well. with honors at graduation, but it's fine. It's fine. You, you know. You've got the memories and you've got the experience. So that's worth its weight in gold. Uh, you talking about how sort of you decided to end up, uh, you fell in love with it and decided to go and do the whole thing. Cause when I, with the AT, we had gone on a camping trip, a bunch of friends and I, when I was about, I don't know, 19 years old or something. And we were hiking around the Smoky Mountains and we, we stayed on the actual AT in one of the shelters. And that was where I met these two AT through hikers. I had before that, I had no idea the Appalachian Trail even existed. And these guys are like, yeah, we're going all the way up to Maine. And I'm just couldn't wrap my head around it. And that was the first little seed that got planted. And the more I investigated and the more I read about it, especially Bill Bryson's book, uh, A Walk in the Woods, dude, I was I was absolutely hooked. All I needed was the time to actually go and do it. How people can discover these sort of these amazing adventures. And I, I mean, you could call it a vacation in some ways um, just by by just pure coincidence, it seems like. Yeah, I think the 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 really beautiful thing about an experience like what you're describing is you never know when the inspiration for these kinds of, you know, call it a pilgrimage, right? Whether it's for religious or spiritual or just, you know, a move into move kind of reasons, you know, you get this inspiration from sources you wouldn't ever expect, and then you can't get it out of your head. And that to me is the real magic of it. It's that it's that 
you know, you're not looking to, to put a feather in your cap. It's not as if you did the AT because you're like, I want to be able to tell people I did the AT. Like, that's a terrible reason. I'm wearing my badge around. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. That's, you know, that's, that's like if, if you, you know, you hiked Kilimanjaro and then that became your personality. Like, oh, I hiked a mountain. It's like, well, okay, calm down. But, but <laughs> I think it speaks to something in our souls that when we get these ideas, we have these little taste of the experiences that we then go, I need the whole thing. And, you know, I had the opposite effect on the, uh, the, excuse me, the AT had the opposite effect on me. I hiked in, I think it was early high school. I spent a summer backpacking and we did a chunk of the AT via backpack. And by the end of it, I was like, hard pass. I am not, this is not, yeah. this does not call to my soul. Might be different today, but definitely 14 or 15 year old Jason was just like, I don't know, man, a hot bath and like uh, some Cheetos would be really nice right now. What section did you do on the AT? You know, it's hard to remember because it was so many years ago, but I remember it was a chunk of the Appalachians and it was, you know, I mean, you, you know, do you remember what, uh, what state it was in? It was West Virginia. So, so Virginia, West Virginia. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know what they say about West Virginia? No, I don't remember either. It's okay. Um, but I do know that, that <laughs> oh. West Virginia is beautiful and I love camping. You know, I love a much more sort of like, let's go spend three days out by a river kind of experience, but the. Um, just the challenge of spending that much time living out of a backpack and, you know, the terrain I was, it, you know, didn't call to me. What called to me about Spain was, uh, the experience of walking across a country that I wasn't super familiar with meeting people who were, you know, of all athletic natures, right? Some of them were sort of me, very kind of middle of the road. Some of them were much more, you know, athletic people who were trying to do 20 or 25 miles a day. And frankly, you meet an equal number of people who are in their 70s or 80s who are doing five miles a day because they can afford to spend three months hiking across Spain. And I loved my experience in part because of the people I got to spend so much time with. And I really, I really realized over time, the experience of walking was part of my Camino, but my the, you know, if I were to say my real Camino, so to speak, was the people I got to spend time with. I mean, I hooked up with a group of seven or eight other people at the beginning, and we ended up doing the whole thing together. And those are the memories that have stuck with me the whole time. It was that crew. And those, you know, the the people, the amount of people that are on the Camino, the Camino are is is huge, right? Each year, I think I was reading, it was saying like two hundred thousand people as a whole do the whole network right. or something. Yeah, yeah, and That's, it's probably I mean, what a couple thousand who do the AT. Yeah, I mean the numbers, the numbers drastically went up after Bill Bryson's book, and then I think it was the year after they made that movie. Then all of a sudden, it just it, it hockey stick chart. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so you know twenty. 20 years ago, you might have had a thousand people go and try it and 90% of them weren't going to make it. Now you've probably got more like five or 6,000 people. I'm not 100% sure, but uh, it's definitely way more popular. When I did it in 2012, the first quarter of the trail was pretty populated. You always saw people. There were people in every shelter. The second half, pretty much alone. I think I camped alone for 70 days or something like that in the woods outside of the towns and stuff. Um, it's yeah, it's it's I'd, I'd compare it. It'd be a very lonely, lonely trail comparatively. The attrition yeah, rate is really what gets you, though, because I, I like you said, I mean, the terrain on the AT, especially in the beginning and at the end uh, is is brutal. It's taxing yeah. and it's unforgiving for sure. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think, again, you 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 
you earn many tips of my hat and I'm sure many others for doing it because um, for me, it's the kind of a thing that it, it, we were talking about this the other day too, that, you know, it's like relating back to sailing. There's a romantic idea about it, the solitude, the personal constitution it takes to be able to do that, the planning, the ability to roll with the punches and improvise if something goes south, sounds great in one's head and reality is much more brutal at times and can be much harsher. And you really have to decide you, it's not just that you want it or that you need it, but that you have to have it and that anything else is subpar comparatively speaking. And I I, I really, I, I, I admire your constitution for having done it. I know for a fact, I do not have it in me to do that, at least not in this moment. Well, maybe the AT, but you know, you ever thought about the the Pacific Crest Trail? That's uh, that I've heard that you know that one's twenty six hundred miles, I think, and um, but it's not all the useless up and downs of the AT. It's a lot more gradual sort of stuff. Is, is there any thoughts of doing any other long distance hikes in the future? I'm- Absolutely. But, uh, you know, I've got a three-year-old, so I've got at least, let me check my watch here, 15 more years before I can entertain that possibility. <laughs> right, right. I got you. I got you. Yeah. It's understandable. I, you know, it just, it does sort of get into you, though, that lifestyle of the the daily walking, the the constantly moving forward. And like we said, talked about the other day, you know, having that purpose and that challenge that you're trying to reach that, that very tangible goal um, gets in your system and, I think I think for me it's it's always there as long as I can figure out what what goal to aim for it just gets inside me and I'm always kind of craving that after a lot of the trips that I've done I bet well for me you know I think a lot of it um a lot of it dates back to when I was in college. So I, I don't know if you would recall this, but um, you know, when I was an undergrad, I went through treatment for Hodgkin's lymphoma and I went through chemo and radiation and came out the other end, 20 years clean, super healthy. Thank goodness. All oh, the scans wow. were all good. But uh, you know, part of the uh, you know, sort of life change that came out of that was a desire to push myself in those kinds of things. Um, and so when the Camino came up, you know, it was at a time in my life, which, you know, I was probably nine or 10 years after sort of recovering from all of that sickness and all of that life strain and stress where I realized I'd sort of wanted to shed some of the things that I had, you know, sort of kept in my life from that experience, some of the anxiety, some of the frustration, some of the, like, you know, the, the, the fear that sometimes creeps into your life after big traumatic events like that. And, and in many ways, the Camino helped me sort of say like, all right, like I can own any of this. I, you know, I, I, I did the one thing when I was 20, I can do this thing when I'm 30, I can do the rest of it. No problem. And so for me, it really helped, um, put a cap on a long period of time in my life where I really felt like, you know, I wanted to make those pushes, but there were a lot of sort of, you know, post-traumatic issues that I, I had to spend some time resolving before I could get myself to that place. And and as if at the end of a book, you know, the Camino really sort of helped me do that in a lot of ways, really close that uh, chapter. There's, there is something to be said about long, constant walking in the woods or on a trail, just out in nature, essentially, as, as a very deeply healing sort of... Uh, activity and i know for me personally on the at i was at a point in my life where essentially i'd been working in the caribbean for five years and it's just non-stop just seven days a week just go 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 so burnt out by the time i hit that fifth year 
that that was when I sort of sort of snapped a little bit and I was I don't know you know you, you get that that idea of like man I I feel like I'm putting so much energy into something and it's really not making me all that happy I need I need to go figure some stuff out and you know I know not just me but a lot of other people that I met on the trail lots of uh lots of young guys that had come back from Afghanistan and stuff like that you would see them out there and they were using it as well as sort of a I don't want to say a reset, but maybe a way to sort of center things because you do, you have all that time where you are absolutely in your head, you're in this beautiful environment. And I think when those two things mix, that's one of the best recipes for good sort of insight and introspection, uh, if that's the right word for it. It, it definitely was was big for me to finish. I definitely felt like, okay, now I, I kind of have... I don't know. My compass is now clear, let's say. I get that. You know, it's funny you talk about you talk about, you know, spending 5 years sailing boats in the Caribbean and in you know, in my head that's like a, you know, Jimmy Buffett parrot head kind of life, which of course it's, it's not. There's a tremendous amount of real physical work that goes into it. Customer but, service, man. Uh, Customer service. Yeah, I mean, I, I jokingly referred to you the other day as Captain Ron, but I, I think if, you know, it's it's more probably like below deck where the guests are constantly, you know, saying inappropriate things and you're dodging unfortunate, stupid stuff. Um, but yeah, 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 <laughs> you're like you're like, I don't, I don't need to cover that again. You're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think what I what I really took away from my experience was I started the Camino thinking I had to answer a kind of you know, conventional question about, you know, what do I want in the next part of my career? And, you know, what do I want in my life? Kind of this vague gray sense of like, I want to know what I want to do next. And what I discovered is I wasn't, it's not the question I wanted to ask. It's addressing the questions that I couldn't ask myself about who do I want to be and what are the things in my life I'm ready to shed and what do I want to move forward on? And look, I'll be honest, you know, 10 years later, some of those things have come back. I'm, you know, I, I, regularly go to therapy to talk about some of the anxiety issues that I now realize are going to be a constant in my life from some of what I experienced. And, you know, I'm perfectly comfortable talking about some of the, you know, the, the challenges that, that have stayed with me, even though I did the Camino and felt really good about myself after there is that high you get after finishing it. And then there's the drop off, uh, you know, that, that, that you also experience of like, well, now what? And all of that is to say, you know, there's a term on the Camino in Spanish, it's siempre Camino, I'm always walking. And and in life, we're always walking, right? This is just, this is who we are. We're just always moving. We're always, you know, moving forward if we're doing it right. And we sometimes have to carry the baggage that we thought we left behind with us for the rest of our lives. And sometimes we get to drop it off on the trail as we're moving along. But in the end, it's always about thinking, how do I take the next step forward? How do I get to the next day? And how do I give myself the grace to know that, Sometimes I'm I'm going to have to deal with things I thought I already dealt with before, and that's okay. And that's the thing that I'm sort of addressing now in my life. I, I turned 40 in a month, and you know, as I look back on all of these experiences, as I'm sure you have too, you know, it's great. That sometimes they make for great stories, but it also really makes for great uh, moments to sort of capture where in your life you were, who you were in that moment. And do you want to go back to being the kind of person that can do those things again as sort of a good sort of high watermark to aim for in your life? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I always, always have imagined that there is going to be a point if I'm lucky enough to live to be, you know, 80 years old, there's going to be a point in there where all I really have is the ability to sit down, 
stare out at, you know, hopefully some nice views and remember and think back on all these experiences that I had in my life. And I, and I think that's true for everybody that eventually there's a point where it's just you and the experiences you had and making sure that you use this time wisely as uh, as a young person, not that either of us are really that young, um, is absolutely essential. I mean, I just turned 45. There's no doubt that I'm on the downward slope of the hill at this point. Well, let me tell you, you don't look, you don't look a day over 37. So mazel <laughs> oh, yeah, you. No, great skincare. Uh, the lighting in this room is not uh, all that good. It's actually red walls. So I think that's what does it. But when you get done, we'll talk about your video production side of things. You know, we can see yeah, camera. Yeah, I'll yeah. help you. It's fine. I got you. <laughs> Um, well, I, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, you're that 80, 85 year old guy staring off, you know, in the beautiful view, let me ask you, is it going to be in Michigan? Cause I have noticed since the time you and I met everybody who's from Michigan just freaking loves Michigan and almost can never stop talking about how much they want to get back to Michigan. Is that, is that just a local thing? Is that just something that I'm just going to have to appreciate about my friends from the Midwest? Uh, you know, I don't I don't know what it is, because honestly, most of the people that I know and grew up with, they all at least they, they left for college or they left for a couple of decades. But then slowly in their late 30s, early 40s, they all started rolling back in. Now I'm in the you know north part, but I'm in what we would call northern Michigan. And, right. you know, as long as you can put up with the winter up here. The summer and and the spring and the fall are absolutely just stunning. And there's there aren't any real big cities around. The nearest one is Grand Rapids or Lansing or Detroit. And they're, you know, a couple hundred miles away. So you're 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 out in the boonies up here. And it's just I don't know. It's beautiful. And there's lakes and. I don't know. There's something that I'll always, I mean, I, my parents, they went down to Florida and they've become Florida residents. And, mm -hmm. um, they were like, Joe, Jerome, you should come down here. And because you don't own a home, cause I live on my boat most of the time. Uh, they were like, you can use our house and become a Florida resident. So you don't have to pay like income tax and things like that. And I was like, I, I can't give up my Michigan residency. I just, I feel like I feel like I need to hold on to that for some reason. And it, it, because from a financial point of view, it's, it's a really dumb move, but I don't know. There's something in me. It's that Michigander. It's like you're talking about. There's some weird curse or not curse. <laughs> There's some well, weird spell that this state It might be a hold. curse. Now, hang on. You don't know that for certain. It might have been a witch <laughs> back in the 1600s who was like really tired of these know. people. I'm going to make this happen. No, I get that. I just think that that it's interesting. I mean, as a guy who grew up, you know, in Maryland on the Chesapeake Bay, you know, half my friends never left and the other half left and have never gone back. And I just have always found it um, remarkable, inspiring, interesting, and at times strange that my friends who either grew up around Michigan or vacation there or were in there, you know, grew up in, you know, they, they grew up in, uh, in Traverse City and went to U of M and all that stuff. They just never, they never want to leave. And I, I appreciate the beauty of that. Um, my brain is too focused and maybe this is a parallel for you and I as well, too focused on travel. I mean, I, I've, you know, I've traveled throughout Europe and my wife and I are talking about how we can live internationally and have multiple passports and give our son more of that life. That's not just based in one spot, but I do find it interesting that, that there's 
often not a middle ground. There's, you know, there's folks who say where I grew up is where I want to be and I never want to leave. And this is my place. And others who go, I can't wait to get out and never go back and see the world. And I find it really wonderful that you kind of found a way to do both in a strange way that you've lived that international life, but home is Michigan and you get to come back to that and not even the pull of the beautiful, uh, you know, income tax free Florida can, can get you to change your mind. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And, and to be honest, that was a very, uh, a, a considered sort of thing when I was much younger I can remember telling myself, you know, I knew that I wanted to work in the Caribbean. Like when I was probably 13 years old, I remember definitely thinking like, I want to work in a tropical island someday. Uh, so I can be in these beaches at night and see these stars and it's warm and all that. I also remember thinking like, I want to have as many experiences as I can while I can do them so that when I do get old and I can't do these things anymore, I'm okay with that because, you know, ideally I used to picture in my head and I would tell people that to see everything I want to see so that the last bunch of years in my life, I can just sit and watch the squirrels play and read books and be totally content that I don't need to go out and see anything. I don't need to do any more travel. I've done enough. And I think I'm on my way. I'm not there yet by any means, but uh, yeah, I'm, get, I'm getting that, that rocking chair is starting to call. Well, I get it, man. I do. I mean, you know, my adventure right now is, you know, getting a kid up for daycare, getting him off and, you know, my wife and I getting into our work and all that stuff. And there are times where I'm just like, how do I get to the part where I just get to sit on the couch and hang out? Like where's, where's, where's the part where I'm just like, I, you know, cause as a kid, you're like, I just want to get enough money as a grown up that I can sit around and play video games all day. You're I don't right, even right. own a, a video game system anymore. Like I'm I, like, like I have become the version of me that my 12 year old self would look at and go, dude, what happened? So I, you know, who knows? Yeah. All your grand plans. What are you doing? You have to go to work every day. Ah, oh, you're I, up so early. Well, I mean, not only that I have like. I mean, I've got these classic, you know, I've got the little, you know, NES classic and the SNES classic sitting on my desk. They haven't been connected to my monitor in months. I am so boring now. <laughs> That's where self-discipline comes in. You've got to make time for those little Ooh. things, but your priorities are, are way different now. I mean, truly you are on God, the yes. big adventure when, when you, uh, when you have the family and everything, I tip my hat to everybody that, that goes that route because you know, it's something that I've sort of missed out on in my life for sure. And it's something I think about, you know, I try not to dwell on it. But when I see families and stuff, especially with younger kids in their, you know, three to six year olds and stuff where they're really fun and they're little and, you know, man, it's it's amazing. But wow, what a responsibility and, and, and an adventure you can't walk away from either. Well, no question about that. But you're not past that point. That could still happen for you. My dad, <laughs> listen, my dad. My dad had two kids post 50. He is now 75. He is the most active, engaged, crazy 75. He's got the emotional maturity of a teenager and frankly acts like it in the best possible way. Um, and, and you absolutely could still be that, you know, again, that's, that's a yeah. choice, right? Like for me, I was always pulled towards, you know, in undergrad, I was a, I was a theater major, but it was always like children's theater and education. Like I always liked working with young kids. I mean, even at, at Michigania in the summer that you and I worked together, uh, Mitch, our camp director, he called me to babysit his kids. Cause like, that was the thing I offered to do all the time. Like for me being a 
dad or being a sort of dad figure was almost a given. And my, my wife and I often joke that like, as you know, when we were growing up, we often thought of ourselves as being parents first before we ever considered we'd have to be partners to make that happen. Not necessarily in, in that uh, moment, even with like somebody yeah. else that we liked. It was just like, I'm going to, I knew I was going to be a dad and didn't, didn't really see any other path for myself. And so, um, you know, that could very much happen for you. The only thing I would say is that the older you get, the, it becomes a lot less exciting to be up at three in the morning with a colicky baby. I'm just throwing Dude, that out there. Like, I, I yeah. know, bro. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know. I think, I think all the time that I was able to spend working at camps and working in resorts and stuff, and there were always kids camps and things like that involved. And I've had a lot of fun being able to hang out with kids and do sailing and stuff with them. But kind of a true guilty pleasure of mine when the kid that's just erupting has his parents come and pick him up and then he just disappears from my life for for the rest of rest of the day pretty nice and that's an indication to me where i'm sort of like maybe it really isn't ever in the cards for me but again i know most people say as soon as you have your own kid your whole world changes right uh, they do. And, uh, but there's, a, you know, there's a cliche aspect to that too, that I will point out that, you know, your world is going to change no matter what you're right though. You got to be the kind of person who wants to own that change and wants to hold on to that responsibility. And that's a really important, you know, distinction that you have to make for those that are just like, yeah, kids would be fun. Like they're not accessories. You got to do the work. And I got to say, <laughs> there are times where I wish I could hand my kid off to somebody else to be like, ah, oh, he's kind of a pain in the tush right now. You go deal with him. I yeah. Get it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, geez. It's well, a thing kind of wonder that's got me thinking a little bit you know i i'm always you know moaning on about trying to experience all these things so that later on in life i have you know this big bank of these great memories and experiences you know maybe that's because i know i'm gonna basically be like alone and and be like that lonely old meyer that's out there and and it, you know he's alone and all that sort of stuff uh maybe that's why i'm it. always uh, grappling to get all these experiences and when you have a family something that's a priority really because you sort of be able to live through your kids and all that sort of stuff i would think i mean so i'm not not an expert no no no. i i think listen i think you raise a really good point which is there's a perception in our culture particularly and i mean like american culture specifically that when you have kids there's this immense responsibility to sit down and focus as if like you really need to get them sort of built into the world of, you know, getting educated, getting out of the house, going to college, getting a job. I mean, you didn't follow the traditional path that your parents might have set out for you. Mm, I no. think you turned out pretty well. I think yeah, you did okay. You. I think most of the people in your life would probably say like, you know, Jerome, you know, you don't fit the mold of the person who who went and got the degree and got the sit down job nine to five kind of thing. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. I think the one thing that I'm really focusing on as a parent and really working with my wife, who's got an even bigger vision for this than I do is I, I don't want the life of a nine to five in the same house for my son forever. I want his perspective to be broader. I want him to have the adventures, the kinds of adventures you're talking about. I don't want him to wait until he's in his twenties and thirties. I want to go find weird stuff for him to do when he's 12. And, you know, we talked about the Camino earlier, there were people on the Camino who brought their kids, who walked with their kids, who brought them in big strollers and had them in backpacks. And like, they only did five or six miles a day because that's what the kids could do. But like, they did it with their kids. I think part of what you're speaking to is um, we as an American culture in particular kind of have this very old school view of when you have kids, 
You got to get focused and you got to do the thing. And the thing is raising your kids for 18 years in a house that's stable with the yard and all that. And in reality, that doesn't work anymore. So if the promise of the American dream, which is so much harder to achieve now, can't be managed easily. And now we're in a life where everybody has to work and it's hard to be home all the time. And, you know, we have all these other things pulling at us. Why not go live the life of exploration with your kid and give them a different kind of upbringing? might be harder in some ways, but you're giving them an experience that is always going to be unique and is going to help them grow in ways that a very sort of traditional approach won't necessarily provide. Well, and and you as the parent as well gets to go out and and be totally. part of that experience. There's there's a lot of You're saying the quiet pa- you're saying the quiet part out no, loud not. about my selfish <laughs> need for adventure. Uh, Dude, we're going to Tahiti. Um, <laughs> the there are a lot of people I've I was able to meet up with this young lady who her parents took her when she was I think like 4 or 5 and they sailed around the world. I think it took them like 3 or 4 years kind of commonplace and going to hear about this. And I, I couldn't believe it. I, I just thought, wow, how amazing that would be to, to grow up visiting country after country, seeing all these different parts of the world, being exposed to both the good and the bad, having to deal with the harsh realities of life at sea. Um, you know, I, I just compared to, like you're saying, sort of the generic, you know, American thought of, yeah, 18 years, go to college, get a job. That's what you do. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of different ways to sort of infect your children with a whole different future and a whole different world and expose them to all these different experiences and hats off for it. That's, that's really good that you've got that sort of in your mind frame. Cause most people don't, I mean, he, no, no, I totally, but like, he's already flown across, you know, he's flown, we've flown him to Hawaii. We've flown him to DC twice. We took him on a trip last year to Costa Rica for two weeks and he got to, you know, live in, uh, Uvita for a couple of weeks doing, you know, seeing his mom surf. Oh, um, nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we getting his passport was a nightmare. Can I just say, but worth it. Um, but, <laughs> but we, you know, the, the, we're lucky. I have to call this out because, you know, I, I don't want to come across as not sort of cognizant of this. Like we're lucky that we're privileged enough to be able to do it. I work in tech. I've been lucky to be able to have some success in tech. We, you know, a trip like Costa Rica. Also, it helps when you have a wife who is very good at finding flight deals and all that crazy. But like, you know, I think raising kids now requires a kind of parent who instead of thinking traditionally is able to improvise. So again, bringing it back to sailing, when things go south, what do you do? You got to look at your, you know, you got to look at the resources in front of you. You got to figure out how you're going to get to some amount of, you know, stasis so you can assess and fix things. But in the moment, you got to sort of just deal with the the problem at hand. Kids is no different. Traveling with kids is no different. Finding the resources to be able to travel with kids, exactly the same thing. And um, for me, it's just become more and more vital that we make time for that. And as a good reminder for me, as I'm, you know, as, as I'm, you know, having my, I don't know if it's a midlife crisis, it's kind of a, like, a, I, I don't know, is midlife 40 still anyway, but as I'm, as I'm thinking about what <laughs> <Yes>. I want, <laughs> there we go. As I want my next 40 or 50 years to look like I, I unconventional is something I'm aiming for. And I think, I hope we all have the ability to aim for. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, well, and, and it is, it's one of those things where, you, you reach sort of a certain age and all of a sudden you've got a definitely a very different perspective on life. And, you know, through all the things that happened in your 20s, you must have that that must have been an absolute 
game changer as far as how you were able to see things. Not, you know, we don't have to yeah. get into it or anything like that, but I, we can, if you want, I'm, I'm happy to talk about whatever, you know, I'm an open book. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Well, yeah. it is when you have, when you have experiences go on in your life and I've, I've, the majority of mine have all been out at sea and there's been sure. times where I definitely wasn't sure if I was going to make it through and all that sort of stuff. And the perspective that that gives you is something that can't be taught. It can't be told. It really has to be experienced to, to come out of a situation like that. Okay. On the other side and the world looks very, very different. And I'm sure you could definitely agree yeah. with that. Without a doubt. Fortunately, though, I mean, I think we also live in a world that is much more, is it as receptive to those kinds of experiences as it should be? Maybe not yet, but it's more so than it used to be. You know, I mean, they're particularly with the advent of the internet. I mean, when I was done with my being sick, like I was really lucky. I was still in college. I had friends who helped, you know, help me work through it. And I, you know, I really leaned on them hard. Um, but there was no online support resources for me. You know, there were no groups for me to reach out to and have virtual conversations with. Um, and so I think part of what I'm grateful for is that my son's going to grow up in a world that is much more vocal about these kinds of things and much more able to express them so that when he inevitably has traumatic experiences and difficulties and frustrations, he doesn't just have to sort of be in his small, you know, inner circle of family and trust that they're going to be able to help him and his small group of friends. There's a whole world of resources and conversation to match it, that's going to be able to help him, which I, I'm I'm grateful for. Um, and he's he's going to break his arm a couple of times. Like this is a kid who likes an adventure. This, this is going to be a thing. <laughs> Bit of a tree climber, is he? He is, and he's a kid who, you know, he's he's uh, he's a little bit of a runner, and he's kind of at that little bit of a clumsy stage, so he's constantly skinning his knees, oh, and I'm just certain yeah. at some point he's going to trip on something, we're going to see a foot twisted the wrong way, and we're going to start to get really familiar with the intake nurses at the local emergency room. <laughs> like, I just feel that coming. Funny, because those, like, I can remember where I fell on my bike, split my chin open, had to go to the hospital, all these different things, but then as you, you know, you get older, you kind of forget about them, and then this last summer I was visiting my cousin. They have three kids between the ages of like four and eight, two boys and a girl. And of them have skid rashes on their elbows, their face, like all of them. I was like, oh my gosh, Max, what, what is, what are you doing to your children? He's like, just three scooters and a hill. And that's all those little push scooters they were on. And you know, it's one of those things where he's like, yeah, we're not going to go to that hill anymore. It's pretty bad, but that yeah. miling and all this sort of stuff. Once the, once the pain's over and you forget about those sort of experiences. And, and again, I mean, you know, when you have the kids, you get to sort of relive that. It's almost like you get to relive your childhood in a way, right? Without a doubt. Absolutely. Um, although I never, you know, and I say this, let me knock on wood here real quick. I've never broken a bone. So I don't actually know what that experience is like. Neither my, have I. My, hey, Air 5, there we go. My brothers, on the other hand, I have watched my my one brother, uh, you know, the, I'm the oldest of six, the next one down, number two. Um, used to bump his head and, you know, mangle himself so much that I, I, you know, I joke about the intake nurses. They really did know him on a first name basis. So he'd roll into <laughs> suburban hospital in Maryland and they'd be like, Hey man, how's it going? Like, do you need that? You know, grape soda. We got one on the fridge for you. Like, just come on in, man. We got all your information. Don't worry about it. Uh, My dad, dude. after a while, was like, we need to go to a new place. This is not okay anymore. <laughs> Child protective services have got us on a watch yeah. list right now. <laughs> it is a, uh, uh, it is a wonder that nobody came to the house for an inspection. Yeah, I swear right. to God. 
exactly. When I, when I think about it, and I love, that's one thing I love seeing memes of on the internet is like, you know, it'll, it'll show like a kid with no helmet on jumping his bike over a, a homemade ramp in the front lawn. And it said, if you know you were born in the 80s or something like that. I remember doing all that. The safety, sure. the amount of safety protocol then was minimal at best. And the amount of like, you're just, don't watch the TV. Yeah. It'll rot your brain. Go outside and play. And it wasn't like, you know, tell me where you're going. Take your cell phone. It's like, all right, be back for dinner. That was that was yep. the amount of communication. You know, and, and I, I'll, I'm with you. There's a part of me that misses some of that. I think the other... The other thing I have to, I'm reminded of a couple of times by my own folks is that there's a bit of survivorship bias in that of like, yeah, you remember, we all remember like being, you know, just come back when the porch light turns on, you know, when the, when the street light comes up, you need to come back home kind of a thing. Um, we're just the ones that live, yeah. right? There were some kids for whom that happened. They didn't come back. Yeah, and so like whenever true. I hear somebody wax nostalgic, not that you're doing that, I want to clarify, but like whenever I hear somebody who's like, yeah, when we were kids, like they didn't even know where we were. I'm like, yeah. And I'm really grateful you came home, but not everybody did. Have we swung the pendulum the other way a little too far? I'll grant you that. I mean, the <laughs> fact that like, you know, there are parents who like, they've got their, you know, find my kid apps and they're constantly monitoring their social media and they're, you know, you can't go anywhere until you at least have, you know, your brother who's old enough to go with you or me. You know, like there's too much of that. I think there's a middle ground that we can find where it's a, a, a happy place of safety and independence. Um, where we were as kids, I mean, even me growing up a few years younger than you, like the number of times we went to the, the muddy hill near our place and got just absolutely stung up by wasps. It is a miracle none of us were allergic. You know what I mean? Like th that kind of stuff just absolutely should have killed at least one of us. So there's there's a middle ground there somewhere we should be able to find. That's, it's definitely a good point. I've never thought about it that way, that we are the ones that survived for sure. But uh, right. yeah, I, I think you're right. A middle ground is because you need to have that. You definitely need to have that independence and you know, you, you can, you can, I think be rest assured that your child will be okay as long as you've taught them well yep. and you've given them the information and they know what to do. And, right. you know, I mean, for instance, kind of, kind of weird, but you know, even in a small town in Michigan, uh, my younger brother and I were walking downtown. I think I couldn't have been more than eight years old, if that, and a van pulled up right alongside us. They opened up the door and this dude was like, Hey, there's some money. Somebody dropped some money down there and you should grab it. And he was basically trying to get us to go in this van. Who knows what his intentions were? I have no idea. I looked at my brother and we just ran and you know, we kind of, he didn't chase us or anything like that, but yeah. that was something, you know, it was always taught to a stranger danger. Like you got taught that by your yeah. parents. You got taught that in school. And that's my one childhood survival story, I think, where I, I made the right That's decision right away and nothing ever came of it. So, woo, that, that definitely. Right. Otherwise, uh, otherwise, I'm doing this interview by myself all the time. You know, it's the, it's the, the back to the future. You start to fade all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, well, hey, listen, I know we're, we're getting kind of close on time now. And I, I, as much as I'm enjoying this, because I'm actually learning quite a lot about the whole family life and the realities of everything, um, it's it's sight because I it's it's funny when I when I hang my cousins who have little kids, peppering them with questions about what it's like family life and all this sort of stuff, and they're peppering me with questions about what it's like to be out on the ocean and what this is like and this adventure and all that. There's a, a like a push pull, so it's always going to be something where I'm very curious about. Uh, unless I ever do pull the trigger, but 
just a couple more questions about uh, the trail, if you if you wouldn't mind. Just a couple technical ones, actually. I I am happy to answer whatever questions you have, and we can run over time. You just tell me what you want to talk about, man. I'm here for uh, you. I, I really appreciate it. So we'll we'll do what I what they call what in the presidential briefings or whatever the press secretary. We're gonna circle back to yeah. the uh, Camino real mm. quick. See, you could work in an office. That's a very like. <laughs> let me just we'll circle back. We'll take this offline. I'm gonna see if there's some synergy here. You're nailing it. Just trying my best off the cuff. Did want to talk about accommodations and gear when you're mm-hmm. doing this trail. Yeah. So I guess first, first, cause on the AT, obviously, you know, outside of the towns that you stop in once a week or so you're in the woods, you're in a tent. Is any of that stuff necessary on the Camino? It can be if you choose to. Um, so camping along the Camino is not frowned upon, but it's not as, um, I don't want to say convenient. It's just not as necessary. So, um, when the Camino was a true Camino, when it was not really set up for tourists the way it was, if you think back 50 or 60 years ago, camping along the way, absolutely. But as it's become more popular, um, hostels in Spain are referred to as albergues and albergues are set up all along the route. There's even now, um, there's public albergues, there's private hostels and, you know, you can spend, you know, five or 10 euro a night to have a public, uh, hostel, which is clean and fresh sheets and there's a kitchen and a, you know, and a bathroom that's very well maintained, or you can pay 20 or 30 euro and you can have essentially a private room with a shared bathroom space and like a television and, you know, sometimes dinner's included, but that's very common throughout the entire path. In the mesetas, in that middle part, they're further apart. So there may be some opportunities for like real camping, but the reality is like, you bring a backpack that can hold 15 or 20 pounds worth of stuff. You don't even need 20 pounds worth of stuff. You know, you want the basics of like, some food, you know, your underwear, your change of clothes, et cetera. You're doing, there's laundry services all along the way. So you're not doing any of that. Like I got to clean in a Creek kind of thing. Um, and you end up more often than not kind of deciding if you want to get up early enough to get your choice of albergues in the morning, uh, excuse me, in the early afternoon or sleep in a little bit and then sort of get whatever's left. Hypothetically, if you go too long and you don't get to a smaller town in time, you might be forced to sleep outside, but even you know, you can go sleep in a churchyard and nobody's going to say two, two, you know, two things to you, right? It's a totally normal thing. Well, so, um, do they, no, do ahead. they have any designated like camping spots along the way? Or is it like you're saying, like, you know, the yards of, of churches are just public land, I guess. There it's, it, there aren't really designated camping spots. So Spain doesn't, at least in the part of Spain I was in, did not have, you know, campgrounds. There's no KOA equivalent to where I was. Although to be fair, I was on a very specific path. It may have been off the path and I missed it. But my memory of it is that if you wanted to camp, you were more likely to just need to find a park or a church or something where nobody would bother you. Um, you know, the challenge too is that those those folks tended to get messed with a little bit more frequently. There are thieves on the Camino. Um, you know, and I don't want to speak ill of anybody, but there are groups of people who will try to scam you and try to take stuff from you. And the folks that camped out tended to be a little bit more of an easier target for it. So it was generally suggested, get up early, get to a hostel and just sort of let your stuff be safe. And so that, that was kind of the name of the game for us, at least. Okay. Do they, are are there, uh, cause you know, that the AT always, uh, any conversation, the murders always come up. There's been about 10, sure. 10 murders or so. The last one, I believe, was in 2019. Um, grizzly story. Ugh, I don't even want to get into it. I actually did a podcast about yeah. it. But uh, is is there, like, violent crime on the, the Camino? You hear stories of, you know, 
once every couple of years somebody gets beat up and there there have been stories of murders it's generally when somebody is um out partying uh, you know right, they right. go and they find like some group like they go they go follow a crew of people and there's a usually either some sort of you know gang violence or drug and in, you know drug involvement um but i i have vague memories of folks you know talking about some guy who went crazy and hid in a you know field with a knife and just sort of stabbed somebody but the truth is that's a very very rare occurrence um it's more likely you know theft um and a little bit of you know somebody got beat up and they got their stuff taken so american passports on the camino are very you know they, they're worth a Valuable, lot and yeah. so if you aren't careful you're gonna lose your passport and somebody's gonna steal it and sell it i i remember i was sitting in um leon on arrest and some girl came up she'd clearly She'd seen some stuff. There was some not good things happening for her in her life. And she tried to convince me to show her my passport. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to show you my, no, 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 let me see your passport. I just see, here's my passport. I'm like, okay, I can see your Romanian passport. Like, that's nice, but I don't want to show you my passport. <sighs> and she got aggressive about it. And so eventually my friends and I sort of just were like, you need to go away now. And we just walked towards, you know, a church where we knew there'd be police officers and security guards. And she left, but like, you know, the, the, the general um, vibe on the Camino is very community centric. It's very friendly. It's very, is it, you know, is there something wrong with you? Let's five of us get over here and help this guy and make sure he feels like he's got what he needs to keep moving. Um, so the amount of, of potential violent acts is pretty minimal. Okay. Well, that's good. And, and the communication uh, as far as the whole community, you know, on the AT, each one of the shelters has a little, register in it uh just a little notebook and people kind of sign it and they say where they are that way you can kind of keep the people that are around you and all that sort of stuff with all the cell phones and the cell phone coverage in the states that uh it's probably all on an app online and and all that sort of stuff but it was there any sort of communication because what year again did you do it so I hiked in, oh, I know you're throwing me back. The second time was in 2016. 2016. Okay. Um, so it was right before the 2016, it was the summer before the 2016 election. Um, so what's interesting is like, I didn't get a SIM card for Spain. I just figured I would just sort of, you know, there's wi There's free Wi-Fi in every cafe. There's free Wi-Fi in every albergue. It's very easy to stay connected. Um, so for me, at the time, there wasn't like a specific check-in app or anything like that, but it was pretty easy to share communication with other folks. You end up in like all these Facebook groups at the time where people are sharing information, you know, the 2016 Camino Pilgrims kind of a thing. Um, so on the one or two times I can remember seeing a warning of like, hey, if you're on this particular Camino, be aware of this, you know, this hostel, there's somebody there who's trying to scam people out of X, Y, or Z. You know, I remember one or two of those alerts, but otherwise it's just kind of giant WhatsApp groups and people are just sort of trading notes. Um, I used to, you know, I, I, I check in with my folks every day or two to be like, hi, I made it to the hostel. I'm still alive. But other than that, not a lot of check-in. Okay. Okay. Well, that's cool. It, it is, uh, you know, yeah. I've always found it interesting, the, the communication networks via a moving mass of people. Um, you know, doing yeah. it in that rudimentary way, like they do on the AT. And I think, like I said, now I think it's mostly phones, but they still, I'm sure have the registers as sort of a traditional sort of thing, sure. but it is, it, it's, it's so funny how a person could only be, you know, a couple of miles ahead of you and you might never see him for a couple of weeks and, and you're still somehow staying in connected with them and, and all that. And usually it was from just a, a written note or something. I always thought that was pretty neat, but yeah. There were some spots where you would see kind of like guest books, right? Yeah, Similar kind yeah. of thing where folks would sort of sign in and sort of leave notes for each other. 
Um, but again, like, you know, the cell phone coverage was, um, solid where I was. I mean, the folks that had SIM cards, they could call out pretty much any time. Um, then the community that you ended up, you know, sort of building people ended up clumping together. So yeah, like yeah. I talked about earlier, I, I, the first night I was in that little French town, I met, you know, a guy named Austin, a girl named Valentina. We met a couple of other guys who were from Ireland and we sort of formed this core group of seven or eight people. And we had one or two others that would sort of trade in and out as the time went on. Um, and that was our group. And so we'd sort of have these conversations with people and they'd fall behind or they'd scoot ahead and we'd sort of make it work. And then when we all ended up in the same place together at the end, everybody always spent a couple of extra days in Santiago, uh, in the city. So even if you'd miss somebody and that, you know, you didn't see them for two and a half weeks, they were at the end and they were all, we were all waiting for each other at the end as best we could so that we could all go and celebrate together. And so there was this nice, like almost kind of sense of homecoming at the end, even though you don't, these are not my family, you know, these are not people I've known for longer than four weeks, but that sense of camaraderie and that sense of uh, collective achievement was, um, you know, it was, it was, it was the beginning of a big celebration every time a new group. Yeah. Came oh no, that sounds, I, I'm sure those were some pretty fun nights. I couldn't even imagine. <laughs> they, they, they were, although I will say Spain, the way that Spain serves drinks, there's a, you know, gin tonic, which is one word there. They, they serve it in like what looks like a fish bowl. It's like a thing of ice and just like massive amounts of gin and just like a couple of dashes of yeah. tonic. And, and, and I don't remember at least one of the three or four <laughs> nights that, I spent dude. in Santiago afterwards. Well, it was, it yeah, was a I mean, uh, through hike. I used to always say a through hiker is never satisfied. And that came to food and it also came to beer. You know, when you were in a town, yeah. you, you just meet your metabolism is so crazy at that point. Oh, yeah. that you're just, you can imbibe so much but yeah it will always sort of catch up with you <laughs> i mean that's the problem now you know i lost i don't know i probably dropped 10 or 15 pounds hiking the camino just in that month and then um you know i just like you know the the guys who've done it once or twice were like it's gonna come back oh, don't eat like yeah. that man you know and then like three three four months later you're just like oh, crap now i'm like five pounds heavier than when i left and now i'm 40 and yeah, how away. come I can't eat so much peanut butter and tortilla <laughs> rolls and cookies mm. for lunch every day? What the heck? Yeah, coming off of the AT, and uh, I remember really trying to dedicate myself into eating salads and taking it easy. But yeah, I mean, you you get that that taste for like things like peanut butter yeah. and and just lots of calories. And I mean, you could eat. I remember sitting down and eating three Subway footlongs and I was like in one sitting. Yeah. I mean, that was midpoint in the AT when I was doing like almost 30 miles a day for a bit of a stretch. And yeah, I was, wow. I was in beast mode at that point. Well, I, I got to ask you about that. Cause like the idea of doing 20 miles a day consistently, the, you know, the shin splints that would have come, you know, would have hit me would have been, you know, debilitating. How did you get up to 30? Is it just, you did it long enough that your body was like, I can do more of this. And you sort of just figured yeah, it out. Essentially what, what happened in my experience was pretty weak knees. And I, within a week on the trail, my knees hurt with every single step. And I was really worried that, you know, this was going to be it, that I wasn't going to be able to do this physically that I was going to be in too much pain. And I would take breaks. Uh, I'd take a whole day off. I remember in somewhere in Georgia, um, because I was just like, man, my knee hurts. I just got to ice it. Then about five weeks went by, kept my pace at, you know, 15 miles a day, maybe 12, something like that. After about five weeks of that, the pain went away. And then it seemed yeah. like each day or each week it was up in the game, another three to five miles. And then by the time you hit Virginia, 
you could pretty much do 25 plus miles every day. And, and I remember one day in particular, somewhere I think in Pennsylvania, a real flat day doing 40. And the only thing that stopped me at that point was that the bottoms of my feet just were, they felt like they were on fire. They were so sore. When I got to the hotel, I, uh, I essentially, and I think that was part of the reason I was hiking 40 miles. Cause I was like, I can get to a hotel if I just do that extra couple. <laughs> I yeah. got there. I remember ordering a pizza, pleading with the delivery guy to pick me up some beer. And he did. And I left the door open. I was lying on the bed. I literally could not stand up on my feet after that day and reached my like pinnacle at 40 miles. I'm, yeah. I'm pretty much done. My feet will just fail. That's a hell of an accomplishment. The fact that your feet didn't fall off, mm. man, is just like it magic. Pain. That's it was pain for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Did you take did you take a recovery day after? Or did you get up the next day and I hike again? I got up again? the next day and hiked again. Yeah. I just needed that like, you know, eight, ten hours of sleep to or just being off of my feet to to cool them off. And sort of got delirious towards the end of the day. And I remember in this little corridor of woods, and there's lots of fields around, open farm fields, and I passed by this little, uh, you know, old little graveyard with a little metal grate around it and stuff. Kind of look at it and I go a little further and then I stop and I was taking like a little food break or snack break. And then I get up and I'm walking in the wrong direction past it, but it's on my other side. And I kind of looked at it and I was like, oh, cool. Another graveyard. And I keep walking. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me. I was like, wait a minute phone thankfully i had taken a picture of it and i was like oh my god i'm walking in the wrong direction it might have added about a half mile or a mile to my day but thinking holy cow if i hadn't taken a picture of that thing and then been able to look at it realize i could have walked like five miles been just camping in some farmer's field and it's fun of a story uh or fun of an experience did you did you ever encounter somebody where you tried to camp on their land and they like, sh- you know, sort of waved you off? Did you ever have an experience where it was like, cause my, my big fear on the Camino was that, you know, I, I, if I needed to, I had, you know, I had enough gear that I could sleep outside. It wouldn't, it, you know, just be sleeping outside. There'd be no tent, but I, I kind of got this paranoid thought in my head that like, I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night with a shotgun in my face. And then it's going to be just like, it's going to be one of those experiences. Did you ever have one where somebody was like, you started to set up and they, they, uh, you off? no, not really. There was only, I think one camp spot somewhere, I think in Virginia or something where it was mm-hmm. a privately owned campsite. Cause a lot of the AT was sort of essentially from people like the, the government did eminent domain to, to build this corridor around this trail. And in some places it's really narrow. Some places it's really wide. And I remember having a campfire there. I was one of the few AT hikers who would actually build a fire almost every night if there was a, a fire ring. And of us just yep. you know pass right out you eat food and then you just get off your feet and i was kind of like i'm i'm in it man i'm loving this we're camping let's build a fire you know all that sort of stuff um but the this couple came and they seemed a little agitated uh we chatted for a little while but um you know i think i was in the right you know to be staying there and stuff but the vast majority of the ATs all, you know, wide open for AT hikers. And in the South, you don't have to stay in any sort of um, designated camping area. It's, it's you know, camp wherever you want. There are campsites, there are shelters, but you can stay anywhere. You get to Connecticut 
And if you get caught camping outside of a designated area, it's like a $200 fine and they've got ridge runners up there. It's, it's kind of strange. Luckily, there's only like 60 miles yeah. of, of that state on the AT. But for me, I wanted to hike or camp as high up as I could because it was about June or July that I was there. The mosquitoes were terrible. So I wanted to be as, as much elevation as possible. And all that means is you set up your, your tent you know, at, at dusk. And then you're out of there at dawn and, you know, you're pretty much good to go there. So, I don't know, you know, different rules for different states. Do like, say I wanted to do half of the AT again, I would do the Southern half Mm -hmm. from, uh, Georgia up to, uh, the Maryland. Where is it in Maryland? Harper's Ferry, I think is sort of the traditional midpoint. The Southern sections, man, it just, it felt a little freer, a little more wild, I guess. And Virginia was just beautiful. Stunning, stunning place. Yeah. Well, I mean, as somebody who grew up there, I would say you go to Harper's Ferry. Uh, that's a perfect spot to stop because they've got inner tubing right there. So just hop on a tube, bring a six pack, just float down the river right there. Man, we used to do that all the time as kids. I'm telling you, that's that's the way to do it. <laughs> well, and and I know that on on your trail there is a, there are yeah. a couple of traditions. Um, one is they have the passport, and then isn't there a tradition where you're carrying mm-hmm. a rock or a shell or something like that? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So first the passport, um, if you've never done the Camino, it's a really easy thing. You're supposed to bring a literal physical passport that can be stamped with you so that, um, you can signify and track which of the albergues you've stayed in. They all have unique stamps. And in fact, I, you, you know, your, your listeners won't be able to see it, but behind me is actually, uh, over here framed, uh, my, my passport uh-huh. from my, one of my passports. Cause I, I was on there for so long. I had two but framed one of the passports from the Camino um, with all those unique stamps. Um, But yeah, the other thing is that uh, there's a point at which there's a little bit of a holy site. And the idea is that when you start your Camino, if you're going to get, if you're going to start the Camino early enough to get to that point, you bring a stone with you as sort of a, combination blessing and um, sort of an intention stone, right? So you're supposed to, when you get to this site, the I think it's called the Iron Cross, if I remember correctly. Um, but when you get to the cross, you are supposed to leave the stone with you both as a way to send a prayer, but also as a way to leave behind the things that you brought with you on the Camino that you need to shed. And so it's this sort of combination experience of, you know, sort of a, a prayer of intention for the future and a shedding of the, the negative that you want to leave behind. It was, you know... I remember that particular day I was having shin splints. I was walking with somebody I I wasn't particularly excited to walk with. Like she was badgering me with questions that I did not want to talk about. (laughs) Like I was not having a particularly good day. And then I finally got to that spot and it, I I just sat as, you know, as if in prayer for 30 minutes, just like, if I just sit here long enough, she's going to keep moving and I can have some alone time and that's going to make me feel better. And we're all going to be fine. And that's exactly what happened. I got my alone time. I got to recover. I was less of a jerk and the day was fine. But yeah, it's a, it's a, um, the Camino is filled with these kinds of little, you know, things that you learn along the way in terms of both tradition as well as, you know, interactions, you know, you never bring your shoes inside. Right. And it's not just because your shoes are dirty, but because, you know, you don't want to bring your, it's a way to sort of, you know, leave behind the, the trail for the day and to just sort of be present to where you are. And, um, you know, I mean, those are the kind, you know, you, you, everybody finds a walking stick or the, the shell that you were talking about before the, the sign of the seashell is the sign of the Camino. And there's a longer story. I don't recall off the top of my mind, but when you see sort of, it looks like the shell symbol from shell gas, but it's, it's that kind of traditional seashell. 
it's it's everywhere and there's like now little tourist shops that sell them and that kind of thing but like the idea is that you're supposed to find and bring one with you uh, as sort of a you know sort of a representation of your trip so that when you come home and you have it on display somewhere it's a it's a way to sort of hold on to that energy in the uh, long term okay yeah cuz i saw i saw pictures of that shell on the like the marker stones and stuff like that it's like a blue background yeah. with the you know the little lines that outline a shell yeah. okay okay yeah, yeah. So, so um, the other thing that you see if you ever walk um, are the um, uh, the yellow arrows, and the, that's the way that the the path is defined for people. So you're not constantly looking at a map all along the whole path. If you're on one of the traditional caminos, um, there are yellow arrows that have been painted or spray painted, or sometimes they're actual physical arrows um, that are meant to guide you along the right way. And it comes from some story. I'm trying to remember. It was something about, you know, somebody saw the arrows as a, as a, almost sort of a, a blessing, a miracle of some sort in their mind's eye. And that's what led them to safety along the path. And so now as an easy way for people to navigate all the towns along the way have painted the yellow arrows where they want the pilgrims to walk through as a means of both getting them where they're going and not being disruptive to the town and its normal oh, economy. Oh, right, right, right. And that, that begs the question. I mean, did you ever get lost? Did I, I think once or twice. So the, there are times where the path splits and you're following either an easier or more difficult path, depending on what you want your elevation to mm -hmm. be for that day. And I remember once or twice, I don't think we got turned around so much as like, I got, I got us off path cause I wasn't paying close enough attention. So it was more sort of, instead of taking the, you know, the, the shortest route between two points, I was sort of taking the big circle around it. But, um, yeah, I don't, there may have been, you mentioned it before about getting turned around. I feel like there was one day where we ended up hiking back something similar, like, you know, half or three quarters of a mile the wrong way before we figured out we'd gone the wrong way, but it's pretty, Again, like it, it's almost in some ways the 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 Camino is sort of the AT or the PCT like in easy mode, and you just sort of like follow the arrows and stay in the places they have, and make sure you have enough money on you. And generally, as long as you don't intentionally do something stupid to yourself, you're going to make, gonna make it, yeah. it. And and they make it, yeah. And and you know the other part too is the Camino is such now a big part of the economies of these towns that they want you to show up and they want you to spend the money. And so they make it easy for you to get there and not feel as if you're literally lost in the woods by yourself. At any right. Given right. Moment. Well, and you know, the, the AT definitely with all the, the little white blazes that they, they paint on the trees and stuff. It's, it's pretty easy. I never actually had uh, a physical map in my hand. I had a terrain guide yeah. that showed me exactly kind of where it was um, as far as how, how tall the next hill would be sort of thing. But had the necessity of like i need to have a map to be safe going on the at now i can't say the same for like the the pct or definitely the continental divide trail i think you'd absolutely need like a compass and a map probably to to complete that one but sounds like the camino is very similar to the at where as long as your brain is functioning at, at you know half speed you're going to be able to follow the route I'm not sure even today I have a half speed brain, but again, <laughs> at, at my normal quarter speed brain, they still made it usable. Uh, well, this has been just literally, I'm going to do some more research because that sounds like it would just be an amazing trip. Not only is just a nice long hike, but also from a cultural uh, perspective and sort of getting, you know, getting out of the u.s to go do something like that it's, it sounds like it'd yeah. be pretty amazing so it's but now i'm i'm feeling that little burning desire in the back of my uh mind so happy to help i think the the one thing i would say to close you know to, to put a button on the whole thing is um 
It's a beautiful experience. It does not require you to be Catholic. In fact, most of the people who hike it themselves are not Catholic, but you do get to see a really beautiful, um, you get to see a really beautiful part of a country that is uh, deeply religious. And so, you know, the one thing I would, I would suggest is familiarize yourself a little bit with sort of the, 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 um, the kinds of churches you're going to see, the kinds of Catholic, you know, sort of representation you would see. Again, it's not meant to be, you know, proselytizing and converting so much as just, it's really important to appreciate how old some of the churches you're going to see along the way are. I mean, we stayed in, you know, in towns where the church is literally a thousand years old and to be able to appreciate, particularly as an American where, you know, our version of, of distant history is 250, 300 years ago. And for some of these towns, 300 years ago is still new relative to, you know, some of the, you know, some of the buildings that have existed since the Roman empire. Um, it's, uh, deeply awe-inspiring. And so to have that context to understand the different regions, the Basque region versus the Galician region and all of that, um, I my only advice is do the research to understand at least a little bit of Spanish history as well and the Catholicism that informs a lot of that, because you will have such a deeper, more enriching experience along the way. And it won't just be the sort of normal tourist of like, oh, that's a pretty church. I like that. That's, Take a pictures. Re- that's like, what if we don't have crosses <laughs> like that at home. Yeah, let me get that for my Insta. You'll instead like, you'll be able to really and deeply understand um, how important that is to the people who, who, you know, live there and come to there as a true pilgrimage. Nice. Words of wisdom from one who knows. Yeah. Please. I would love to if any, I, I don't, you do it. It's I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. It's fine. It's fine. Um, first of all, let me just say thank you again for having me on. It's been a tremendous pleasure and I'm, I'm so glad we got to reconnect. Um, if anybody's interested and wants to learn more about me, you can find me at Jason Nellis pretty much on every platform. And that's J-A-S-O-N-N-E-L-L-I-S. That's on YouTube. It's on uh, the threads. It's uh, the pod, my podcast. You just, you just search me. There's a doctor in Maryland who's also Jason Nellis. That's not me. I'm the other Jason Nellis. So just just bear put, that I'll in mind. I'll put uh, some links to the podcast and like YouTube and stuff in the description of the episode. So people can click on those and, and check you out. And uh, yeah, awesome, man. I really appreciate it. And I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll probably have to do another uh, another podcast down the way sometime and uh, do some more check ins because, uh, yeah, it's it's fun. It's a great, great conversation. Any, anytime right. you want, brother. Yeah, you give Sounds me a call. Good. I'm Thank there. you, Jason. Yep. All right, man. Take it easy.